Our gracious God, we thank you for your kindness toward us. Your patience. We're grateful that even though we may be topsy-turvy, subject to change on a whim, you are the God who is changeless, always the same. And we remember what you said to the nation of Israel, that wayward bunch, therefore, O sons of Jacob, you are not consumed because of a God who is unchanging. Thank you for your kindness. We gather before your word and we ask that you would speak to us according to your own heart, will, and wisdom. Have that on way, O King of Kings. May we be stewards who subject ourselves to you through our unfailing obedience. Bless your word, we pray. We ask for the filling of your spirit, and we ask that your purposes would be served, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And so I appreciate the opportunity to uh, celebrate another anniversary in ministry. And yes, it has been 31 years, and at this point, uh, closer to 32 than 31. And uh, I have learned a few things along the way. I believe it was Vance Havner, if I remember correctly, who said, we are too soon old and too late smart. Certainly there would be some things that I would change if I had to do it again. A few things that I've learned and I'll just limit it to five in the interest of time. Probably the most important thing that I have learned along the way, I kind of knew it at the beginning, but not experientially. I believe the most important thing that I learned along the way is that I of myself have nothing to offer. And when I say nothing, what I mean is absolutely nothing. And I find that in John chapter 15 and verse number 5, and uh, if you want to turn there, that's fine. We're not going to stand and do the reading of a particular passage today since we'll be moving around to several different passages. But I simply pluck 
from that passage these words. And they're the words of our Savior, the one who actually exercises all power, and we exercise none. He says, I am the vine. And so he says, Pastor, don't look to yourself. Teacher, don't look to yourself. Counselor, don't look to yourself. Dear Christian witness who would like to lead someone into the kingdom, don't look at yourself. He says, I am the vine. You are the branches. Uh, nutrition flows from the vine into the branches. In other words, I'm the source and you're the recipient. And so all that you can do is plug yourself into me and look to me for the source. You don't have the right words to witness. You don't have the right words to counsel. You don't have the right words to teach. You don't have the right words to encourage. And so he says, he who abides in me. And the word abides is intentional. And what it says is that we can't be in and out. It has to be an abiding relationship. That that's where we spend our day. And that is in close proximity to him. We are to remain in constant fellowship with him. Anything that is going to be good is going to flow through us, but from him. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And so the fruitfulness of our lives, the amount that we're able to accomplish for God, the lasting results that our lives bear. He says, the more you abide in me, the more that you're going to produce fruit. And he says, for apart from me, you can do only small things? No. You can do absolutely nothing. And so God says to me as a pastor, he says to you as congregants that we can spend our lives doing things in our own, in, in our own energy, doing things where we are the source and we can literally spend our lives doing absolutely nothing. And there are entire congregations where they are busy and there are programs and there are activities and there are all kinds of things going on and it's from the energy and from the talent of the people and from their education and from their networking and from their wealth and, and none of it's from God. And there's a whole religion, a whole religious program and parade that is constantly going on and it means absolutely nothing one of the things that God has impressed upon me over the years is that 
whatever happens here at First John, whatever success there may be, whatever benefit, whatever growth among the people, doesn't come from me. It comes from God. And all that I can do is plug myself into him and deliver the nutrition that God's people need. And, and, and I have to depend on God's people to plug themselves into that same vine as a branch so that they can draw that nutrition that God offers. I've discovered that there's nothing that I can do to save a person. There's nothing that I can do to grow a person up. There's nothing that I can do to encourage a person. It has to all come from God, and if it doesn't come from Him, it results in absolutely nothing. I can teach the Word of God, I can preach the Word of God, but if God doesn't add His Spirit, if He doesn't add His blessing, it means absolutely nothing. And so it is in your life. You don't have anything to offer. The only thing that you can do is pray, God, would you offer something through me? There's something else that God has impressed upon me over the years of ministry. And that second thing is that the wicked are not happier than the righteous. There literally are Christians who believe that I can have both. I can have the world and God. I can have sin and holiness. In fact, I know I'll be happier if I don't do it God's way. If I do it my way, then I'll be happier. Psalm 73 is where the psalmist said, For I was envious of the arrogant. These people who are so proud that they're only going to do things their way. They know what's right. They know what's wrong. They're the ones who are so streetwise. And I was envious of the arrogant. I was envious of those who were doing their own thing instead of living for God. Because it seemed like they were the ones who were happy. It seemed like they were the ones who were blessed. They don't have to wait until they are married. They don't have to be honest with their expense accounts. They don't have to do right. They can do what they want to do. I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. It seems like those who were doing their own things were the ones who were getting ahead. And of course he realizes a little bit later in the psalm that those people are in slippery places that eventually they fall and they fall hard. As I have moved through the years of pastoring, I've had to counsel a lot of people in a lot of situations, financial and whether it's relationally or whether it's because of sin or whether it's because of foolish decisions. There are so many things that I've counseled people on and 
the thing that eventually dawned on me is that there are so many people who look like they are perfectly happy and they're perfectly miserable and they're just putting on a show. There are people who look like they are perfectly healthy and they are quite sick and you would never know it. There are people whose lives are in ruins and it looks like they have everything together. They have a public smile, but privately they're sad and in tears. Often people are doing their own thing and making their own decisions and disobeying God. And it seems like they're going places, but in all actuality, they're building their lives on sinking sand. And that's what Jesus said, that those who hear my words and do them, they're building on the solid rock. And those who just ignore my words, they are literally building their houses on the sand and they're just waiting for the rain to fall and the waters to rise and their houses will be washed away. Whereas the righteous, those who are saying, I'm going to do it God's way and I'll let the consequences be God's. He can fix it. He can handle it. I'll just trust him. The righteous are building on the unfailing promises of God. And they will find that he is faithful and that their lives are blessed and flourishing and fruitful. There's a third thing that I've learned. And that is that a few serious people can do a lot. Most of the things that have happened here through the years have not been because of the majority of the congregation, but a few committed, dedicated, passionate people. Often we see big things happen and we assume that there was a big movement behind it when in all actuality there were just a few humble, God-loving people who pulled it off by the power of God. Genesis chapter 11 is an illustration of that because in Genesis chapter 11 there's a group of people who after the flood didn't have much at all, didn't have a home that they could claim and they were just moving eastward looking for a place to go, looking for a legacy, looking for accomplishment. And in Genesis chapter 11, God tells us what their secret was, that they were able to not only build the Tower of Babel, but actually to build a city around that tower. And God said, behold, they're one people. They're united. They're not letting anything disrupt the relationships that are in their midst. They're one people. And they all have the same language. They're communicating with each other. There is a bond that is between these people. And God said, and this is what they began to do. As impressive as the Tower of Babel and the city were, God himself said, this is only the beginning of what these people are able to do. 
when there are a few people and they're serious about accomplishing and uh, achieving a mission, there's a lot that can be done. And we've seen it in this church, and we've seen it over and over in many churches where it's just a few people. And that's why the Marine Corps has that slogan, just a few good men, because it's not these large movements of people that actually make the best things happen. It's just a few good people. And so we've seen that happen here. And um, it'll happen again and again and again. And I believe that in heaven, that when it's time to pass out the rewards, that most of God's people are not going to be in that reward line. Because it's the few, it's the committed. It has long been said that in the average church, 80% of what happens is done by only 20% of the people. That only one out of five are really doing the work and carrying the burden and really serving God the way God wants to be served. And I pray you're one of those people, one of those serious people who are helping to get a lot done. There's a fourth thing that I've learned over the years. And it was what God said would happen. There was a time people would go to the Bible. And they would go to the Bible because they wanted answers. They would go to the Bible because they wanted truth. They would go to the Bible because they wanted a standard on which they could rely. They wanted a standard by which they could make decisions. And so they would go to the Word of God. There was a time when people would go to the Bible for truth. The sands are shifting. And now people, it seems, are more likely to go to the Bible for encouragement. Not for truth, for encouragement. God said that they will not endure sound doctrine. Not enough to truth, not enough to doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, make it sound good, make it feel good. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And so it's no longer about the truth. It's now, tell me what I would like to hear. And that's where the church has come to. I remember in elementary school, hearing the teacher read the story, Snow White. I don't know about you, but I loved our librarian when I was in elementary school. She would come in the afternoon and she would read us stories. And I loved for Mrs. Nolan to show up with one of her books that she had selected from the library for us. 
And there was the story of Snow White. And in the story of Snow White, there were these words, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? And that's not really what the queen wanted. What was she really saying? Mirror, mirror, lie to me. Tell me I'm what I claim to be. That was what she really wanted. She wasn't going to the mirror to get a true assessment of herself, but to be encouraged every day that she was the prettiest thing on two legs in all the land. And so we've come to that where the great majority of sermons and lessons it's all about encouraging people and telling them what they want to hear and how they can be blessed and how they can prosper and how they can have more faith to get more stuff and to get more prayers answered and it's not about us understanding the rich that we are the shortcomings in our lives, the things that need to be transformed. And it's not about the Word of God calling us to the work and calling us to sacrifice and calling us to serve each other and serve God with a passion. Instead, it's about me. And so I'm glad that God prepared me for ministry before I had to step into the role of the pastor. Because he reminded me in Luke chapter 6, Woe to you when all men speak well of you. When everybody is praising you and saying good things about you and how wonderful the sermons are and how good the teaching is and how wonderful you are and on and on. In Luke chapter 6, he said, be careful, because that's exactly what they did with the false prophets. And the prophets that were true, the prophets that were real, they didn't really like them a whole lot. When we go to the Word of God, we need to be seeking truth about God so that we put him in his right place, about sin so that we're serious about sin, about the devil and the enemy so that we can know that we're in a war, and the truth about ourselves so that we can know that we are far from God and that there are areas of our lives that we really need to change and have transformed into the image of Christ. I often encounter people who do their daily devotional every day. There's a sweet little premise and a sweet little verse to encourage them. And uh, yes, the Word of God has a ton of encouragement and promises that will fit every day of the year. 
But the Word of God is not just promises and encouragement. The Word of God is often that which is painful and convicting. And if we don't have the pain and the conviction from the Word of God, we have an imbalanced view of Scripture and an imbalanced view of who we are. There's just one more thing. I said I would limit it to five today. Just one more thing that I've learned over the years. Because as you know, churches have people and people come with problems. People come with problems. And not only do they come with problems, people cause problems. And so, sometimes you're looking around at all the problems that people bring and the problems that people cause and you ask, what's the problem? What's the biggest problem? What's causing the problems? What is it that has the highest priority in terms of solving problems? You look at the Corinthian church and there were somewhere between 40 and 60 different problems. And, and we look at that and we go, man, that's a lot. Let me tell you, most churches would be improved if they could be like the Corinthian church. Most churches these days, if they could be like the church of Corinth, it'd be a much better church. And so that which used to be 40, 60 problems, maybe now, maybe 80, 100 problems in the average church, whether it's blended families, mixed marriages, whether it's homosexuality, whether it's laziness, whether it's bad doctrine, whether it's people not able to get along, whatever it is, power struggles and the list just goes on and on but the biggest problem with churches the biggest problem that we have to face these days not that we can't find teachers or leaders or anything else the biggest problem that the church faces these days that is bigger than any other problem is biblical ignorance. We don't know what we believe and the things that we do know that we believe, we don't know why we believe them. Often we can't defend what we believe. Why do you believe it? I don't know. The Bible says it. And I want to tell you there are lots of things the Bible can say if you misinterpret the Bible. And there are so many things that are misinterpreted from Scripture because of biblical ignorance. There are promises that God's people never claim just because they don't even know the promises are there. 
there are solutions that God's people never apply because they don't know the solutions are there. There are decisions that people make and they do stuff because they don't know that God says don't do that. Biblical ignorance? Could that really be the biggest problem of any people? God said it could. In the book of Hosea, God said, my people are destroyed. Nations falling apart. People worshiping idols. People in sin. People in ministry, not doing ministry. Teachers not teaching. Prophets lying to my people. The economy going bad. Wars going bad. Famines. Crops failing. And the whole nation was just being destroyed. This land that once flowed with milk and honey. This land that was once called the promised land. This land is now just being devastated. People sickly. People with anxiety and depression. The whole nation was going down and being destroyed. And what was the problem? In Hosea 4, 6, it says, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. Remember the old saying, You think education is expensive? Try ignorance. That's what it really cost you. And when it comes to biblical ignorance, it is exponentially multiplied. People who are biblically ignorant are at a total disadvantage because you're at a war with the enemy and the word of God, which would shepherd you through the battles, you find yourself unarmed. The sword of the spirit is the word of God. Generally, when I counsel people, you know what it's about most of the time? Just helping them fill in the gaps that they have because they don't know the Word of God. That is what the bulk of counseling is. Just filling in the gaps in their ignorance of the Word of God. It's hard to get people to spend enough time in the Bible. It's hard to get people to invest in Bible study tools like commentaries and Bible dictionaries. People are so busy. People are too busy to read the Word of God. There's Netflix and Hulu and 
HBO and Cinemax and and so people are so busy. I've learned a few things along the way. And God is the answer to it all. I don't have anything to offer, but God does. Those who make their own decisions and walk contrary to the word of God, they're not happier than those who wait and those who fast and those who work and those who tithe. The wicked are not happier. And if you ever look at the wicked and think they're prospering, you, you're just not looking far enough into the future. Because even if they die rich and happy and healthy and fat and everything else, they still have to stand before an angry God. A few people who are serious about God, you can't stop them. They will get it done. We have some people like that in our congregation. It's amazing how much they get done, but God can do a lot through a few people. I just want to be one of them. When I go to the Bible, sure, I like to be encouraged just like anybody. But there's something I value more than encouragement, and that is truth. And often when Jesus spoke to people, he had hard words for them. It was not about encouragement every time he taught, every time he preached, every time he counseled, every time he had an exchange with someone. He called sin, sin. He called immaturity, spiritual immaturity. So did Paul, so did Peter, so did John, so did James. And all of this encouragement only ministry, the Bible knows nothing about that. And biblical ignorance. The most fascinating thing that I've learned about biblical ignorance is that those who are the most ignorant are generally the ones who believe they are most informed. The ones who are the proudest of their knowledge, the ones who will tell you, I know the word of God. They're generally the ones who are the least informed. And those are the most dangerous. Because they think they know it and they're happy to share their error. We don't want to be biblically ignorant because we become useless to God and useful to the enemy. There is a pandemic of bad doctrine that is just ravaging through the churches. 
most people who hear errors being preached and taught can't even tell the difference because their knowledge of the Bible is so poor. Those who are Baptist, they don't know why they're Baptist. Those who are Methodist, they don't know why they're Methodist. Those who don't align with Pentecostalism, they don't know why they don't align with Pentecostalism. They just know that's not how they were taught. If you want to give the most power to the enemy, that's the way to do it. Is just don't know the word of God. You remember Eve in the garden, right? The devil said to her, did God say? And when she answered, she got it wrong. She wasn't clear on what God had said about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was downhill from there. And that's where most of God's people live. Is in biblical error. Doctrinal blindness. A guy wanted to be a minister here. And I said to him... We have a responsibility before God to make sure we're preaching the truth. Do you feel you're prepared? Yeah. I know the Bible. And I said to him, did you know the Bible says that we can lose our salvation? And I quoted to him a couple passages of Scripture. And I said, you agree with that? Yep. I agree with that. The Bible says we can lose our salvation. And then I said to him, do you know the Bible assures us that we can never lose our salvation once we are a believer? And I quoted to him a couple of verses. And he said, yeah, uh, I know that we can never lose our salvation. And I said to him, did you know that we can lose our salvation? And I quoted him a couple of verses from the Bible. And he said, yeah, we can lose our salvation. And that's where the average Christian is these days. They can't defend what they believe. And often somebody comes along and introduces error. They don't know the difference. Well, you know, I mean, I, I know that you're trying to, like, know the Bible since you're like a pastor and all that kind of stuff. It has nothing to do with me being a pastor, a minister, a teacher, a counselor. It has everything to do with eternity is too important. God, I love him too much. To just be totally ignorant about what is near and dear to his heart and to not know his truth. Everybody in this room is in a battle. 
And if you don't know the word of God, you're nothing but a sitting duck. And the enemy is delighted that you're biblically ignorant, if that's your condition. Delighted. I think he just toy with you all day long if you don't know the word of God. You have nothing to stand on if you don't know the word of God. The biggest problem, and I can't solve it, I can teach and preach, but if people are not interested in learning, the Apostle Paul said they're ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. They'll hear it over and over and over and over again. And as Jesus said, it's like the uh, seed that was planted on the on the, on the rocks and on the surface along the wayside and the birds of the air just came and snatched it away. It won't penetrate if you're not passionate. Only you can decide your level of biblical ignorance or information. I'll close. There are a lot of topics that I think I know a lot about. But I don't know of any topic that I know better than the Word of God. What do I know most about? The Bible. I know that better than any other book, any other topic. If I had to go on a game show and I had to pick the topic, what topic? Bible. I believe that's the way it's supposed to be for all of God's people. And I believe if you have valued any other field of knowledge more than you have valued Scripture and learned Scripture, I think you're out of line. I think you missed the boat. I think you missed your calling. I know that to be true. The psalmist said, you have exalted your word as you've exalted your name. In other words, God has given it the highest priority. And that is what you should know better than any other topic. The word of God. If not, the devil can toy with your mind, your emotions, your experience, your decisions all day long. So many bad choices that I did not make. 
just because of the Word of God. And so it is to be with all of us. Let's pray, shall we? God, there's just no way we can win this fight without being equipped with the Word of God. No way we can make good choices without being equipped. No way we can be in the best relationship with you without the knowledge of you that we find in the Word of God. There's no way that we can share our faith properly, fruitfully, effectively if we don't know how to share it from the Word of God. No way we can be an effective teacher for you. No way that we can counsel effectively for you. No way that we can do a good job at parenting if we don't have the Word of God to. We can't even be a good church member if we don't know what you say about what a good church member is. No way to claim all the promises. No way to apply all the wisdom. I pray, dear God, that you would help us to prioritize your word. That we would actually have a passion and actually learn your word. Such a pandemic of ignorance that is destroying people's lives. No way to replace a lot of foolishness in our minds and we don't even know it's foolishness without a knowledge of the Word of God. There are some who don't even know why they're alive. No idea what you want from them. No idea what their purpose is. No idea what their mission is. Just no idea because of their ignorance of your word. I pray that you would open our eyes and give us wisdom and let us see that we're in a battle and we're losing. And we don't get to do it over. We just get to stand before you and, and just say, oops, I blew it. I had no clue. I wish I could do it again. We don't get to do it again. And so help us, dear God, to go the right way, to do the right thing, to learn your word and to live out your word. I pray that you would help us. Or we'll be embarrassed. We'll be ashamed when we stand before you. Help us, we pray, dear God.
in Jesus name amen in just a moment we'll be standing and singing if clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb he says in the middle of its street on either side of the river was the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit every month and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations and in verse number three there will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his bond servants will serve him and in verse number four and they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and there will no longer be any night and they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever and he said to me these words are faithful and true and the Lord the God of the spirits of the prophets sent his angel to show to his bondservants the thing which must soon take place and then finally in verse number seven and behold I am coming quickly blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book thank you for standing with me to honor the reading of the words of our great God and King the Apostle Paul he had a vision of heaven he reported to the churches of his day that he had been called up to the third heaven and he said I couldn't tell if I was in my body or if I was in my spirit I I just could not tell and he says the eye has not seen nor has the ear heard neither has it entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him and so the Apostle Paul he would be able to sympathize with what John has given us that it's not that great of a picture as we would desire but the Apostle Paul said it's just beyond description you got to see it for yourself there, there's nobody who can communicate it to you and the, the the Apostle Paul said that that there's some things that it's not even lawful for men to communicate it's not lawful for me to tell you some of the details of heaven and so the Apostle Paul said that heaven is so good that it would hurt you if I told you about it right now could you imagine being able to see a place like that and then have to still live in a place like this in the Old Testament it wasn't even heaven it was just paradise this place that God has made for the people who were waiting to come to heaven those who were the saints of the Old Testament 
And Samuel, when he was called up by God, and uh, I don't know if you've read the story of the witch of Endor in the Old Testament, where Samuel was called up from paradise, and it was the hand of God, not the, not the witch of Endor. She was freaked out and surprised when he actually showed up. But even Samuel from paradise, he was irritated that he had to come back to the earth. Sometimes we think of our loved ones who have gone on to glory and we would have them back if um, we could and they'd be quite upset that we prayed them back to this world. The Apostle Paul said that it's beyond our imagination that nobody has, has an imagination that is that good that could imagine all that God has for us. And so we see these glimpses in Revelation 21 and 22 of what heaven is going to be like. But uh, in Revelation 22, it opens with, then he showed me the river of the water of life. And uh, it's clear as crystal and it's coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And it speaks of the refreshment of heaven. It speaks of the abundance of heaven, that there was this endless supply of this crystal clear water. And the thing that is so striking about it is that in Revelation chapter 20, this river of fire that is forming ultimately the lake of fire is what is flowing from the throne of God. When the sinners appear before the throne of God in Revelation chapter 20, it's not a river of water of life. It is a river of fire, and God calls it the second death. But here in Revelation chapter 22, it's just the opposite. It's water of life that is flowing from the throne of God. And you see the difference with what issues forth from God when it's the sinner who is standing before the angry God versus the children of God who are gathered home to their loving Father. Now it's this refreshing, flowing river of water of life. And it's right there in the middle of the street. On either side of the river, there's this tree of life. Um, I think back to the Garden of Eden, and there was that tree of life that Adam was not allowed to eat from once he had sinned. Do you remember that? Here's the tree of life, and here's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that knucklehead chose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Never got to experience the tree of life. Banned from the garden, it was guarded by angels so they couldn't get back in. And God says, oh, <laughs> one of the things of heaven is that the tree is going to be back. And there won't just be one of them, but just up and down the streets of glory, that tree of life, it'll be there bearing 12 kinds of fruit. Can you imagine that one tree? 12 kinds of fruit, and not just yielding once a year, but yielding its fruit every month. 
and even the leaves. Say those leaves were for the healing of the nations. Um, there's not going to be any sickness in heaven. Why do we need the tree, the, the, the leaves for the healing of the nation? I believe that that's what's going to be used during the millennial kingdom, that down here on earth when people are still in their physical bodies and people who are in fellowship with God, I believe that they'll have access to the tree of life, those leaves, for the healing of the nation so that the kingdom of Christ for a thousand years will know no sickness and no death. But in heaven, they'll be abundant and they'll be for the taking. And, and, and God says now, if you're investing in eternity, if you're investing in my kingdom, when, when, when all of the wars are over, He says a part of what you get in verse number three is that there will no longer be any curse. Do you know that the misery of work is one of the curses? Not work itself. Before there was a curse, God told Adam that he was to work, that he was to tend the garden, but it was supposed to be enjoyable. It was supposed to be fulfilling and refreshing. That's how our work is when it's a blessing. And he says there won't be any curse. There's not going to be any sense of guilt. There's not going to be any sense of shame or embarrassment. There's not going to be anything that is negative. No pain, no tiredness, no fatigue, no fighting. Nobody at odds with each other. There's just absolutely no curse whatsoever. If you could just dream about the best day that you could possibly ever have, you haven't gotten within an inch of heaven. It is so much more than we could ever dream about. There's no curse whatsoever. Pinch yourself and, oh, that felt good. No longer any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. Right now we're totally separated from our God in a physical sense. We haven't seen him. We don't know what he looks like. But there in heaven, the throne of God and the Lamb will be right there. And his bond servants will serve him. And we'll get the opportunity to work for God. Where God will delegate to us and God will say to us, I want you to do this and I want you to do that. And it's going to be fulfilling and refreshing and rewarding to work for God. It'll be our joy. And this is unthinkable in verse number 4. Because verse number 4 says they will see his face. In the Old Testament and even today, if you were to see the face of God, you would collapse and die immediately. Even in a vision, the Apostle John, when he saw the 
Son of God, Jesus Christ. He just fell at his feet. He just collapsed like a dead person. And Jesus Christ literally had to strengthen him, had to give him the strength to even breathe. But we'll see God's face every day. And because we'll be sinless, it won't be a situation where our respect declines. Did you know that if God walked among us right now, today, because of our sinfulness, because of our hardness of heart, we'd find something to fuss with him about. Why are you invading our world? Why are you always here? Why is it that you didn't do this? Why didn't you do that? We have something to complain about. It is for our sake that God is invisible. And his name will be on their foreheads. Um, there were those who chose to have the name of the Antichrist on their forehead. There were those who chose to have the brand of the Antichrist on their right hand. And millions will do that, billions will do that during the tribulation period so they can eat. And they're going to invest their eternal souls and themselves and everything they have they're going to invest their eternity in the mark of the beast in the devil and of, and of course that's investing in the wrong side but that's what most people will do they'll make the wrong investment they will invest their lives in all the wrong things And there will be those who say, right here, put your name right here, God. I'd love to have your name on me. And right here, in the most visible spot, yes, they gladly identify with God. And the beauty of his name being in their foreheads, absolutely. Things are going to be so different in heaven. There will be no longer, no longer be any night. Can you imagine a world where night is eliminated because there are no nocturnal creatures, there is no fatigue, and so there's no need for you to sleep, no need to have your joy interrupted your fellowship interrupted the fulfilling work interrupted no interruptions you don't need the sleep no night there and they will not have need of the light of a lamp There are no shadowy areas in heaven, no dark spots, no darkness. Where's all the light coming from? 
They don't need the light of a lamp. They don't need the light of the sun. Why? Because the Lord God will illumine them. Do you know where the light's coming from? It's coming from God. It's coming from his people who are shining like the brightness of the sun from Daniel chapter 12. You're your own light bulb because you're emanating the glory of God because of your relationship, because of the way that you have served him and sacrificed for him. The Bible says those who lead the many to righteousness will shine like the brightness of the firmament. And what are you going to be doing in heaven? And they will reign forever and ever. So the faithful children of God are going to be doing what? They're going to be reigning. They're going to be ruling. They're going to be in charge. I know that you are aware of the billions who have lived on planet Earth right now, going toward, what, 8 billion people? But people are not the only creatures that God created. And the Bible doesn't tell us about all of them, but they're the living creatures that are described in the book of Revelation. They're the seraphim and the cherubim and the angels that we're not told what kind of angels they are, but there are lots of creatures that God created besides human beings. But all these powerful angels that we read about throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament, they're not going to be the rulers and the, and, and the ones who are reigning because we're going to be the owners. We're going to be the ones who inherit it all, not the angelic host, not the creatures that live in heaven now. We're going to be the ones in charge. And we're going to rule and reign with God throughout eternity. And it says in verse number 6, these words are faithful. In other words, they're reliable. Why? Because they're true. And uh, what God is saying is this. I know you hear a lot of stuff all the time. But only one thing is going to be true. And that is whatever God says. That's what's going to be true. There's only one thing that you can count on. And that's what God says. That word of oh God is settled forever in heaven. Is what the Bible says. There are lots of people who are making promises saying, hey, you ought to do this, you ought to do that, you ought to invest here, you ought to invest there. And God says, let me tell you the truth. There's only one place where you can be certain, and that is investing in eternity, investing in the kingdom of God. Down through the years, there have been a lot of things that I've wanted. And I chose not to invest in them. And I'm so glad. 
that there's a lot of stuff that I never bought that I was tempted to buy. I'm so glad that I've splurged on the kingdom and I've spent on the kingdom and I've spent extra on God and I've invested in the kingdom of God. I'm glad that so much of the money I would have wasted on pleasure items that I did not. If you want to buy a boat, no problem. Lots of good godly people have boats, and if you want a boat, hey, that may be God's blessing for you. But I'm glad that I didn't buy a boat. I'm glad I don't have a boat. Not saying I'll never buy a boat, but if I have a kingdom purpose for buying a boat, I'll buy a boat. These words are faithful and true. Right here is it. This is the news that will stand. This is what you can count on. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, sent his angel to show to his bondservants the things which must soon take place. And so God said, hey, the whole reason for the book of Revelation, the whole reason for this revelation of the future, God says, that's me. I just want you to know what you need to invest in, what you need to focus on. I... Um, was talking to um, that guy this week and he said some of the stuff that he invested in he did it because he didn't want to regret it later not investing I don't want it to shoot up and then I'm sad because I didn't invest in it there's only one problem with that even if it does shoot up in this world, what goes up must come down. And at the end of the day, it's not going to matter what company he invested in because it's all coming down. These words are faithful and true. And I'm telling you up front how it's all going to end. And he said these things must soon take place. And I know that with God, a, a thousand years is as a day, and a day is as a thousand years. But let me tell you, it's been 2,000. And so when it's soon, it's like now. And then that last verse, verse number seven, and behold, I am coming quickly. That word quickly means suddenly. God says that when I come, it's going to be pretty sudden. It's going to be catastrophic. It's not like 
there's going to be time for preparation. It's not like there's going to be time to do it over. It's not like there's going to be time to get it together at the last minute. And so he calls us to live ready. He calls us to live as if he could come back today. We're not going to go there, but a little bit later in this same chapter, the angel makes an announcement. And he basically says, let those who are filthy be filthy still, and let those who are holy be holy still. The day is coming when God says, all right, all the votes are now locked in. Your choice that you've been making, that's it for eternity. And so those people who are living for God, investing into the kingdom of God, being obedient for God, being on the right side, being committed to God, being loyal to God, turning from their sin, turning from their distractions, turning from all of these worthless things of the world, and they're living for God. God's going to say, all right, time's up. The test is over. Everybody put down your pencils. Whatever score you have is the score that will stand. God has given you some awesome power. He's put you in charge of an eternal soul that is of incalculable worth. It's yours, and you get to decide what to do with it and how much you want to invest in God. And he will do nothing to force you to do anything else. The wise money will invest in God. The wise money will be growing in Christ. The wise money will be becoming more loyal to God, more passionate about God, more useful in God's kingdom, more prepared for eternity. Because he says, when I come, my reward's going to be with me. I'm not going to say, hey, <laughs> I'll be back in just a minute. It's like I'm here. And whatever reward you have earned or whatever deeds you have done, he'll be ready to judge that. And so he closes out verse 7 with these words, Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. Who's going to be blessed? Who's going to be okay? Who's going to be glad? The ones who have obeyed this book. Blessed is the one who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And... You'll find in Revelation chapter 22 that there are just two categories of people 
in this book. There are those who are allowed in, and there are those who are eternally rejected. There are those who are the blessed, and there are those who are the cursed. There are those who are forgiven and saved, and there are those who are eternally damned. You can't be both. You're only one. Either you have turned from yourself and from your sin and from the love of the world and you have turned to God with your whole heart and he's transforming you into a new person and making you like Jesus Christ. Or you're still in your sin and you're still separated from God and you're still damned and you will experience the wrath of God for the rest of your eternity. Smart money? Invest in God. Heed the words of this book. Don't just read the Bible. Don't just hear the sermons. Don't just do the studies and not repent and not become useful and not become like Christ. I'm telling you up front, all the things of the world that we're going after will be worth nothing. It's all going to collapse. It's all going away. And it'll be worth nothing. My loyalty is not to my job. It is not to wealth. It is not to status. My loyalty is to God and God alone. I suggest the same for all of us. Let's pray, shall we? Thank you, dear God. We're living in a book where we're not to the last page yet, but things are turbulent and trying. We live in uncertain times and things are getting worse. It seems it's all coming to a culmination at this point. It's all coming to a head. It's all coming to a climax to where things are about to change very rapidly for this whole world. Lots of questions in lots of people's minds how it's all going to work out. And you give us a preview. You allow us to turn to the end of the book. You give us inside information. You allow us to understand what the lost world can never understand. 
And we pray that you would help us, dear God, to really be a different people because we have a whole different view of how things are. For some, this is all they have. Their job, the 401k, the investments, the short-lived status of this world, the praise of men. That's all they've got. And they're hanging on to it with desperation, but we know that the things of this world is, is just preparatory. It's just giving us an opportunity to prepare for what kind of eternity we would like to have. And so help us to be wise enough to know that the things of the earth are worthless and so temporary. Help us to choose that which is eternal. Maybe somebody here today where they don't know you. And if they don't get to know you, they're going to be standing there being judged next to the lake of fire before your throne. And they're going to be thrown in because only Jesus saves. What a terrible, terrifying future awaits those who don't know you, those who are not obeying you, those who are not living for you. Pray that you would call them to salvation today. There are Christians here. They know the word. They know what's coming. But they're still living exactly the way the world is, prioritizing all the things that are passing. And they're not prioritizing living for you and loving you and sacrificing for you and serving you and building your kingdom. And there are those that you refer to as worthless servants. You refer to the lukewarm who really turn your stomach. You refer to the hypocrites. And I pray that you would call them to a deeper commitment, a real commitment. We pray that you would help us, dear God, open our eyes, give us wisdom to obey. In the name of Jesus, amen. In just a moment, we'll be standing and singing. If you don't know that you know that you're going to heaven if you died right now, I want to ask you to come forward and commit your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. Would you turn with me again to the book of Revelation? The Revelation, chapter 19. In the book of Revelation, there is a single day that I would bring to your attention. 
And perhaps it is a day that is much like the one we are experiencing this day. In Revelation chapter 19, the Apostle John is standing outside. And in verse number 11, he says, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. In verse number 12, his eyes are a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except he himself. In verse number 13, he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And in verse number 14, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. Thank you for standing with me. To honor the reading of the words of our great God and King. In Mark chapter 13, Jesus promised that I'm going to come and put an end to the tribulation period lest humanity would not survive. In Revelation chapter 6 and forward, the world is plunged in war. There is battle all over the place. And beyond all the battles that are going on, there are the devastating natural cataclysms that are happening with the earthquakes and with the hail falling from heaven and with disease and famine. And, and it's a planet that is just gut-wrenchingly miserable. And in Revelation chapter 6, you see armies going to war and nations turning against each other. And it's just a really bad place to live. But God is allowing the tribulation period so that he can purify his people. The nation of Israel, they won't become the people of God again until the tribulation period. And I believe that the church, the bride of Christ, that is now so steeped in materialism and selfishness, where we're so concerned about our money, our status, our image, our own private lives. And, and I believe that the church has largely left the mission of Christ, that we're no longer intense about helping anybody to get to heaven. We're no longer intense about getting people 
to understand who God is and to worship him in spirit and in truth. Our lives are very shallow and they're very tightly focused on the things that are of immediate interest to us. And I believe that God is going to have to, like he did with the nation of Israel. He said to them, I'm going to give you a promised land and I'm going to bless you. And you're going to live in houses that you didn't have to build and you're going to eat fruit. You didn't have to plant the trees. You're going to harvest that which somebody else has sown. And he said, and you're going to forget your God. And he told them the consequences that I'm going to have to, to get you back to being my people again. I'm going to have to take you through hardship. I believe that the church uh, will not refocus without hardship. We are full. We feel free and empowered. We have material things to focus on. And we're not really concerned about the world around us. I believe the church, for its own purification, has a need for the tribulation period so that we can understand that these things of the world are temporary. So that we can understand what God said, that those who are friends of the world are enemies of God. And so he'll use the things of the tribulation period to start regaining control of his world. And for many people, um, they will just be executed. There is no turning back. They will have taken the mark of the beast. They will have pledged their soul to Satan. They will have pledged God as their eternal enemy. And for many of them, God will just wipe them out in order to regain in a visible, powerful fashion, his place in the conscience of this world. And so in Revelation chapter 19, what happens is John is here on planet Earth, and he is looking up into heaven, and the heavens open. Could you imagine that? You're outside and the sky just opens like a curtain. And you see heaven. I know there is that perception that God is somewhere really, really, really far away. That heaven's a billion miles from here. I just don't find that as a reality in scripture. What I find in scripture is that even though heaven is a place that we cannot see, it is a place that is in close proximity to the earth. When the Apostle John would have these visions of what was happening on earth, he was seeing them from the perspective of heaven. And now in Revelation chapter 19, he's back on earth and he is seeing something that happens in heaven and it's in close enough proximity that he can see it. I don't believe that God is some billion miles away, I think that he has placed his invisible kingdom quite close proximity to the earth. In fact, in Revelation chapter 12, where you see Satan permanently cast out of heaven, banned from even uh, entering heaven, he falls to the earth. 
I think heaven is close. And I think if we knew how many people are watching us at every moment, evil spirits and we um, know of the angelic host, we're never alone, we're never anonymous, we, we, we don't have any secrets. We're always in the midst of the millions of eyes. And so heaven opens and uh, anybody have the power to do that? Is there anybody who can open the curtains and uh, lift the veil between time and eternity? Is there any scientist that can do that? This is a display of the unlimited power of God. He just opens the curtains between time and eternity, and here is heaven. And the first thing that John sees is this white horse. And that's because Jesus is coming back bodily, physically, and this time it's not a donkey. He came as a donkey to give his life and to show his servitude, and he came in a very humble fashion. And when he comes again, he is coming back not as a mere man to give his life, but he is coming back as the Son of God in the flesh. The world has an illusion that the world is in control and that the world can rebel against God for as long as it wants. Not true. God has a day set on his calendar when he is going to call the world into account and will say to the world, you will bow to my son. And that's this day in Revelation chapter 19. He's, he's coming on a white horse. And it's a symbol of conquering. And he who sat on it is called faithful and true. Isn't that good news? That even when he comes back as the benevolent dictator over the whole planet, it's the right person. It's somebody who is called faithful and true. Do you know what the word faithful means? It means always reliable. It means that you can count on him to always be the same thing, always do the same thing. You can count on him to be never changing. And he's true. And what that means is that this is the truth. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. Forget every other religion. This is it. There's only one who is true, and that's Jesus Christ. <sighs> Do you see what it says here? And in righteousness, he judges and wages war. Um, one of the sad things about our experience of humanity is that often judgment is not right, it's not fair, it's not equitable. We won't have to worry about that with Christ. And when it comes to waging war, there's often innocent people. There's unnecessary carnage. There's cruelty. There are women who get raped, and there are children who get butchered. 
and we have seen atrocities of the gas ovens and all kinds of things that happen when mankind wages war. And what this is telling us is that when Jesus Christ comes back and wages war against the rebels of this planet, it is going to be laser precise that nobody is going to get hurt who should not be hurt. He's the benevolent one, even in war. Having said that, his eyes are a flame of fire. The Bible describes God as the one who is the righteous and holy judge. People think they've gotten by. They think that their standards are now celebrated and so they're okay. God is angry with the wicked every day, the Bible says. And someday he's going to show that anger in person. His eyes are a flame of fire. And it um, says, and on his head, there are many diadems. There are many crowns. And, and, and that points to that, that he's king of kings, that he's lord of lords. For every king who has a crown, he has a bigger one. For every president who has a title, he has a bigger one. They're just elected officials. They're appointed officials. They're officials sometimes who are self-appointed. But there's a title that's bigger than all of that, and that is honor. There's a crown that says, oh, I'm the owner of the United States, of China, of Russia, you name it, I'm the owner. I'm the king that is above every king. I'm the Lord that is above every so-called Lord. And so there are many diadems that are there on his head. And he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. Did you know that when it comes to names, that that's really significant in the Bible? We sort of throw names around for what's cute and what's different and what sounds the right way, has the right ring. The Bible is very specific about names and names are very important in the Bible. And one of the things that Christ says is that um, he has a name that no one knows. The significance of names is that it often gave you authority with an individual if you knew their name. Gave you some standing. And uh, you recall that when Jesus was casting out the demons out of the man called a legion, he started with the demons with, what's your name? And Jesus says there's a name that nobody knows. There's nobody who can take authority over him. There's nobody who can challenge his authority. There's nobody who, who has some kind of standing with him. 
Anybody who has standing with Jesus, it's because he gives it to them. And so there's a name that no one knows except himself. And in verse number 13, he's clothed with a robe dipped in blood. Isn't that curious? Here he is, he is dressed in white, and he is on a horse of white, and all of his army that is with him is wearing white. And what's the deal with his robe that's dipped in blood? This is his receipt. Let me show you what I paid for this planet. Let me show you what it cost me to regain the godship over this universe. Because you remember, right, that God made Adam the god of this world. He abdicated and Satan became the god of this world. And Jesus Christ bought it back. The planet, the people, everything. And so he has a robe dipped in blood that is the evidence, the proof of his payment for the whole world. And his name is called the Word of God. And so we are given some of his names. He's called Faithful. He's called True. He's called the Word of God. He's called King of Kings. He's called Lord of Lords. The Word of God, meaning that He is the image and likeness of God. He is the expression of who God is. And then it says, And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following Him on white horses. Do you know who those are? Those are not heavenly soldiers that are just the angelic host that have been developed for battle. These are the armies, in other words, the hosts of heaven. That's you. That's me. That's the church. Those are the people of God. Those are the saints who are in glory with him. They're going to come back to the planet with him. As you know, the Bible promises that those who are faithful to God are the ones who are going to rule and reign with him. And I don't know who is in our midst today. It may be that the person who is going to be the mayor of Houston for a thousand years may be in this assembly here today right now. And because of their faithfulness, their consistency with Christ, their devotion, their intensity about their relationship with him, that he assigns them for a thousand years. You're the mayor of Houston, the governor of Texas, the president of the United States, whatever position that he gives to you. Well, how long will I be the, the mayor? When's the next election? No election. My appointment, it's yours. Not for four or six years, a thousand years. You're the mayor. So the armors are coming with him. You see how they're dressed? There are no combat boots. There are no helmets. There's no body armor. 
They're clothed in fine linen, white and clean. You think they're really coming to fight? No, they're just coming to celebrate the victory. It's already won. He's already done. Satan's already defeated. We're coming in white. We're coming for the victory celebration. I remember one of the few games we won when I played football in junior high. Um, at the end of the game, everybody was like jumping and cheering, and, and I was jumping and cheering with him, and my uniform was pristine. I hadn't fought. I hadn't sweat. I wasn't tired. I was fresh. I had been sitting on the bench the whole game. But uh, I was one of the celebrants. The victory was mine, even though I had not fought for it. God calls us to be employed for him. He calls us to fight along with him that this is supposed to be the substance of our lives, that we fight the good fight, that we finish our course, that we complete our race. And there will be those who will be tired and worn out and they have sacrificed and they have gone through pain for him. Who do you think enjoyed the celebration of victory more? The guys who had ground it out yard by yard on the field with their sweat, with their labor. Who do you think enjoyed the victory more, them or me? The ones who could say, we're the ones who made it happen. They have the fulfillment far beyond the one who just shows up for the victory celebration. And so it will be someday. Either you'll be one of the ones who say, I'm, I'm here for the victory celebration, but God used me to get us here. Or maybe you'll be the ones who will say, I'm here, but I didn't do a thing. I let somebody else do it. See what it says in verse number 15? People have the wrong picture of Christ. He's this mild-mannered, wimpy kind of a guy who just says positive things to everybody, never offends anybody, never calls out anybody's sin. 
Never calls anybody a snake. Here's the real picture of Christ. Yeah, he's gentle. He's the Lamb of God. But don't miss the other side. In verse number 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword. People uh, look at that and they go, oh, <laughs> that's just symbolism. I went through military policeman training. And I loved serving as a military policeman. It was my obligation to do that whenever we would travel overseas. Uh, we would um, patrol and take care of the sailors who were on liberty. Sometimes it was along with the local police force. But there was one thing that they made very clear in, in, in military policeman training, and that is this. We never bluff. If we pull a weapon, it's because we're prepared to use it. Don't you ever do otherwise. If you pull it, use it. We don't bluff. I want you to know that Jesus does not bluff. There's a sharp, two-edged sword, and he's going to use it. He doesn't play. He's not timid. He's not always nice. I remember having that discussion with an employee one day. I said, I like to be nice, but I don't have to be. I hope you'll let me. Jesus is not always nice. If we think that we're going to wear his name and live in sin, you'll find that he is not going to be nice to you. Ask Jonah if God is always nice. <laughs> no, he's not nice. I ended up in the stormy sea because he's not nice. I ended up in a whale's belly. Because he's not always nice. I've never known a mom better than my mom. But I can tell you that she wasn't always nice. Sometimes I needed her to be something else. He has a sharp two-edged sword so that with it he may strike down the nations. I thought everybody goes to heaven. Not so. 
Not so. His enemies will be struck down. And he will rule them. And I want you to see this with a rod. Do you know what the rod was used for by the shepherd? It was used to attack the enemies of the sheep. It would be a heavy wooden club. But check this out. Uh-uh. Rod of iron. When Jesus Christ comes to rule the world, he is not going to come in a timid, soft fashion. He is going to rule with a rod of iron. The world will find that yes, he is the benevolent dictator that will reshape the entire planet and the world will again be a paradise. But challenge his authority, will you? And you'll find very quickly that he is not bendable. He will put down every rebellion. It'll be pretty clear. There are two sexes, male and female. Be pretty clear, murder is murder. It'll be pretty clear, there's one God. Says that he treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty. When I read this, I thought to myself, what a shame that the church has gotten away from hymnology, that we've forgotten our hymns. And the hymns were so important to the early church because that's how they conveyed their doctrine in a memorable fashion. You remember the battle hymn of the Republic? Remember that glory, glory, hallelujah? That's from Revelation chapter 19. But we don't sing hymns anymore. Um, who's going to tread the wine press of the fierce wrath of God it's going to be Jesus Christ then you say he loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life that's exactly right but he's also the judge of all the earth the Bible asks the question will not the judge of all the earth do right that was Abraham's question when God was about to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Yeah. The judge of all the earth will do right. For those who don't have Christ as their substitute before God, he's going to do right. 
and let them experience the full fury and wrath of an angry God. And Jesus Christ, his son, is going to carry it out. And the Bible never tries to hide that, never denies it. The Bible never calls us to have an encouraging sermon, every sermon, and just tell everybody about how wonderful they are. The Bible tells us that Christ is Lord of your life or you're going to have to deal with an angry, wrathful God. So verse number 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. All right, you're here. What are you going to do now? The world has been worn with with each other, nation against nation, from Revelation chapter 6 all the way to Revelation chapter 19. And now Jesus shows up. They hate each other. There's open hostility, but there's someone they hate even more. Yeah, we hate each other. But hey, look, he's here. We all hate him more than we hate each other. Let's turn our weapons against him. Someday the nuclear armaments of the world will be turned against you and your king as he comes to take his throne over this universe. Um, and so an announcement is made in, in, in verse number 17 that I saw an angel standing in the sun and he cried out with a loud voice saying to all the birds which fly in mid-heaven come assemble for the great supper of God you don't want to go to the great supper of God the great supper of God is the eating of flesh by all the birds of the world. There'd be way too many people dead to even think about burying the bodies, burning the bodies. Um, the birds are going to eat most of it. I saw an angel standing in the sun. You ever try to look at something that is in the path of the sun? All you see is the sun, right? But this angel is so bright that he can stand in the sun and still be totally visible. We haven't seen anything of the power of God. And so they're told to come and eat the flesh of men, come and eat the flesh of horses. 
In verse number 19, and I saw the beast, meaning the Antichrist, and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Let's turn everything on Christ. Let's get rid of him once and for all. Let's throw everything we have at him. We hate him saying that homosexuality is a sin, that abortion is murder, that discipleship is costly, that hypocrisy angers God, that lukewarmness makes him sick. Let's throw everything we have at him and his standards and his message. Let's do everything that we can once and for all to finally rid ourselves of him. The beast was seized and the false prophet who performed miracles that fooled so many people. And those who had received uh, the mark of the beast and who worshipped the image, the one who had caused all of these people to turn against God, says these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire. So just to make a point, let me deal with the big guys first. Let me handle them like child's play. That makes the point. The rest killed with a sword which came from his mouth. And it says the birds were filled up with the flesh. And just one more verse because this chapter insertion was not inserted by John. It was inserted by a Catholic scholar who was dividing the Bible into chapters. But chapter 20 and verse number 1, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. Why? Because there's a thousand-year uh, uh, prison sentence that Satan has to serve. He's going to be thrown into a bottomless pit. How would you like to be in darkness and falling? Always anticipating the pain of the landing and you don't land. You're anticipating it. You're afraid to death. At any moment, I'm going to hit bottom. And for a thousand years, that's his agony. Bound in darkness, falling.
the God who loves us is the same God who hates sin. He hasn't lost control. He's running the calendar. He gives this world the leash to show their devotion or to despise him. He gives us enough leash to where we can love the things of the world or we can love the things of God. He gives us a proving season. He's giving you time to prove who you are. And so as one preacher put it, there are some little knobs I can turn. But he turns the big knobs. And by the way, the knobs I turn, they aren't connected to anything. I'm not controlling anything. I'm just proving who I am. Because one day, the books will be opened. The time that you have been given, the opportunities you've been afforded, here is what you did with it. Here's what you didn't do. This is just your proving season. But make no mistake, he's in charge. And your day to stand before him already on his calendar. Let's pray, shall we? God, if you really are in charge, and not us. Prove it. Tell us how it's all going to end. Tell us what's going to happen before it happens. If you really have the power to run our lives, to guarantee the best outcome if we obey, Show us that you're in charge of the outcome. Show us that you have control over the future. Oh, you did that, didn't you? You showed us how it's all going to end. And you've given us this proving season where we can prove our devotion that we love you or we can allow all our actions to betray us showing that we love the world 
the things of the world, the pleasures of the world, the people of the world, a whole lot more than we love you. Lord, we pray, dear God, that you would give us wisdom so that when our short lives are over, that we will have done something that actually matters and that people at our funeral can actually say in truth, not having to lie over our dead body, but to be able to say in truth that they fought the good fight. That's what they spent their energy, their hard work, their effort, their resources fighting the good fight. Not fighting the fight to get to the top, not fighting the fight to get their rights, but they fought the good fight. Getting people to love God, getting people to be a part of strengthening his church, leading others to Christ. They finished their course. They did what God assigned them to do. They weren't so distracted by their job that they're so proud of, that they're so tied into, that that just totally distracted them from being good soldiers of the cross. They finished their course. And so there's laid up for them a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award them on that day. Give us wisdom. We ask that you would make us the people that you want us to be, where we actually love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that we love our neighbors around us the way we love ourselves. Help us to prioritize the right things, to fight the right fight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.